This is a Many Pathways production. Hello and welcome to How Do You Mind, the podcast that talks about self-care, mental well-being and gives out general life advice. My name's Jodie and I'm your host. On today's episode, I'm very excited to say I have an interview with Dr. Regine Moradian. She is a licensed clinical psychologist based in Los Angeles. She's an author. She's a mum. She speaks five languages. She's incredible. We had a really, really great chat. We talked a bit about the restrictions, a bit about how we've all been coping in lockdown. um, And we chatted about mental health in teens and children, which is something that she specialises in. Uh, But we also talked about her brand new book, Frankie and the Worry Bees, which I'll put a link to in the description so that you can check it out yourself. Without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Regine Moradian. So first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for doing this. It's a pleasure to have you here and to talk to you. Yes, absolutely. My pleasure as well. So wonderful to be here. That's fantastic. Um, Now, obviously, you are in the US. Um, You must have different restrictions that we've got here at the moment in the UK. What kind of COVID restrictions are you facing just now? Oh, gosh. So right now, um, it looks like we're preparing to go into another lockdown, if at least it feels like that. Mm. Um, yes. Uh, I mean, such as, you know, outdoor dining, shutting down slowly and things like that. Um, but some kids are back in school, kinder through second. Um, that's the major, just the major changes. But it feels like it's the same all over the world based on what I'm seeing. We're, yeah, we're pretty much the same here. It feels like we're locking down again. Yeah. And as you say, schools, some of our schools are back and some aren't. Yes, yes. I mean, how, how are you coping with everything? I know it must be so hard. <laughs> I know it's, well, I'm a, you know, mom of three, um, you know, working from home and it's, uh, you know, it's had its challenges. I, I feel at this point, it's a common question I get is I, I feel we're, we're all adjusted, so to speak, to to the routine by this point. It, it was certainly hard at the beginning, uh, but now it's it's we're a little bit more in the flow of things. I, I think it's interesting you mentioned that. I was telling someone the other day, it's going to be really interesting when we all have to go back to normal. When I say normal, how it used to be, and getting up in the morning and getting dressed and rushing out of the house and getting the kids to school in activities. And just getting back on that track kind of reminds me of when you stop working out and you get back into back working into out, yeah. <laughs> right? That's what it feels like to me. So it's, uh, it's going to certainly be interesting. Uh, and, and I guess I, we all feel this way. We don't know when that's going to be, um, it's well, going to be really it's interesting. All, it's the uncertainty that I find so tiring. Like <laughs> it's really difficult. Yes. yes, absolutely. How is it over there? I mean, as I say, we're in a weird stage where we're locked down, but we're kind of not at the same time. Like we've Mm -hmm. got some of our our cafes are allowed to open, but our bars aren't, Um, which because of alcohol and alcohol takes away inhibition. So then we hug each other and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there's other parts in Scotland where bars are allowed to open. So we're in a bit of a weird every place is different. <laughs> yes, at the yes. Moment. 
Oh gosh. I know where I feel like anywhere we, anyone or you speak to in the world is, is in the same boat and they're feeling the same emotions. I, I, I there's kind of like this bond where you can talk to anyone about COVID and <laughs> we, I think we've all been through something very similar and similar emotions. Absolutely. What, what I find great about that though, is it is literally worldwide. Like there's not one country that isn't feeling it right now. Um, yes. So it's yes. Like a shared experience, you know? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so I've got um, a few questions prepared for today. I thought I would just start off by asking how you were getting on. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. So I wanted to ask, how did you get started in clinical psychology? Mm. So, uh, gosh, I um, initially I was... Uh, studying international relations and politics. Uh, that was my passion as I wanted to get into. Uh, I mean, my dream really was to work for the United Nations and children's rights. I always loved working with children. I always knew that. And uh, life took a different path, I have to say, uh, after I finished uh, my bachelor's. And I just fell into psychology. Literally, it was, um, it was a, a sort of a, a push of what do I do now? and uh, just fell into it and literally fell in love with it because it just felt so second nature to me. Mm. And that's how I uh, became a psychologist. Uh, it wasn't something that was ever on my mind, ever planned. And I think that's the beauty of it is life really takes us in different directions. I, I think when uh, now, especially as I work with a lot of teenagers and prepping them for college, I do a lot of that in organizational management and executive functioning and mm. taming the anxiety with applications and interviews. I tell them, you know, I think there's so much pressure. Oh, what do you want to be? Who do you want to be? What do you want to do? And having that pressure at 17 or 18 to, to know is so premature because I just from my experience, I have to say, you don't really know, or you may know, but it may take you in a different direction. So I love that there's that exploration phase, especially here in the United States. Uh, I, I believe, I'm not sure, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I'm not sure if in Scotland, I know we, you have the A-levels and the O-levels. Is that correct? Is it still like that? Um, it's actually changed since I was at school because um, oh. I had something called standard grades, which is now no longer a thing. Um, but um, I know in England there's A-levels and in Scotland there's O-levels. Yes. yes, yes, okay. But yeah, okay. It's, a, it's tough because you kind of have to pick quite early what you kind of want to do. Yes, absolutely. And I grew up in Europe. So for me, it was, you know, the European education system, which is, you know, you know how it is. I, I mean, one of the best, right? We have excellent education and there is that push to kind of figure out what you want to do. Uh, based on just as early as high school. So it's, it's really interesting. And, and I think that's what I really valued was the, the shift and the turn. And I'm, I'm so glad I kind of got into this and doing it 15 years later <laughs> and loving it more and more. <laughs> so you mentioned that you grew up in Europe. I, I believe it was Italy. Uh, so I grew up in France. France, sorry. In France, yes. Um, I was born in the UK, um, and my my parents were, um, you know, in import export their their jobs. My dad was a physician, and they traveled a lot. So every four years, we were literally living in a different country. 
Um, so I've had quite a bit of school changes growing up. Um, mm. I did most of my schooling in France, um, uh, but also in Israel and in Romania. And then what brought us here to the U.S. Um, again was was also my mom's job. So it was pretty interesting as I was able to grow up with different cultures um, and was blessed, really blessed to learn five different languages during that process and uh, just gave me a really good worldview. And, and that, that's really why I was so intrigued with the international world. And mm. for me, it was just second nature working for the UN or any type of governmental agency was just the second, just normal for me, uh, you know, and just following those footsteps. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wish I could speak five languages, honestly. <laughs> I wish I'd been I, taught, you know. So do you, is that something you pass on to your children? Do you teach them? Uh, that's where I failed. You see, that's the failure piece. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I know I, everyone asked that question. Well, you know, they, it, it's really, it's really difficult. I, I wish I did. If I could do that over, that's when I, I surely would. Um, it's a hard thing. I think with languages, you have to have, a parent speaking that language, another parent speaking another language, and maybe yeah. the country you're living in, you're learning that. So, uh, it, you know, we live in America. I, I mean, English is their first language. Mm -hmm. And um, they learned Armenian, uh, you know, just being in the, in the schooling system and from my husband and family. Um, but I wish, I wish they could have learned. Uh, my daughter's right now taking French uh, and I can see she has an affinity to languages already. She's picking it up so easily. And, you know, I, no, I wasn't able to pass on all of them, but we're definitely very multicultural and they hear it, you know, they'll hear me speak Romanian with my dad or I'll speak a different language with someone else. And so I think there's that desire. I can see that to learn and, and want to learn. I think it's hard when, you know, you're a working parent as well. It's hard to kind of put all of your time into that, you know? Yes, yes. No, it's definitely. It's, it's definitely harder. Um, so I, I love the schools too that have multicultural language and immersions. I think they're wonderful. Um, kids are very resilient. They um, just knowing multiple languages is so good for their just cognitive structure and they're able to, they can learn, they can do it. I want to say by the age of eight, I was already fluent in three languages. So oh you can, it's very possible without confusion. I think a lot of parents feel, oh, my kid will get confused or they'll, you know, they'll develop a speech impediment or something. And I say, no, their, their brain is so plastic. They, they can do it. They can definitely um, ease into that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another kind of area I want to ask you about is you've obviously been practicing for, was it, did you say 15 years? About, yes. About 15 years. So in the years since you started practicing, what changes have you noticed about the portrayal of mental health in the media? Oh, yes. There's been, I've, I've noticed tremendous change just in the development of teenagers in general. I want to say, uh, you know, from what I remember from the beginning, we had, we, we, we had social media, but not as much. And now I'm seeing more in terms of just mental health. I don't know if we're just more, aware of it because we're talking more about it. Um, but I certainly feel that social media has impacted a lot of issues such as body image, uh, anxiety, 
um, and also depression. Mm-hmm. And we've all heard, uh, you know, the effects of social media on depression and how that makes you feel. And, you know, that, that had a huge, that had certainly has a huge impact on the shifts that we're seeing. I'm also seeing more acceptance towards mental health. I'm seeing uh, more of an openness in terms of parents being um, uh, more forthright and, and wanting to help the kids in a different way. So that's been really great. And, uh, but social media, you know, it has its positives, it has its negatives. And I think there's a lot of education I do around that component, which is so important, Mm. especially nowadays. And uh, realizing that what you see is really not real, but kids and teens, they really internalize that as real. Um, I I think there's also a concept here in the States, we call it FOMO, which is Teens experience a lot, right? You're missing <laughs> <Yep>. out. <laughs> you know, you you check on a story on Instagram or Facebook, and you know you're you weren't invited to that party or you weren't included in something, and that can really damper uh, their mood and just create so many assumptions in their mind of what might have occurred, and of course that can create symptoms of you know depression and isolation and just feeling withdrawn. So, what advice would you? give to parents who have children dealing with that? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm a big proponent of communication. So Mm. it's all about teens and children having the strength and courage to talk to their parents. And, uh, you know, one one advice or technique I, I usually give is being an active listener, which means not offering your advice when you see your child is in pain or struggling, just being present and being there and listening rather than saying, oh, you're going to be fine. Stop crying. You're going to be okay. Stop worrying. Hmm. Um, it's like, kind of like we have a rule. We don't tell an anxious person when they're having an anxiety attack, calm down. You never want to say that. The worst because thing. It's, <laughs> thing. <laughs> it's the worst thing. They don't want to hear that. Because they're um, in their head going, well, I can't be calm. <laughs> Yes, because their their whole sympathy, you know, all the the nerves and you know everything's just rambling and and going off chart, and they want to control it internally, but they just can't. And the same goes with this active listening exercise, which is all about you know parents saying something like, "Okay, I'm here. I want to listen. I can see that you're upset. I can see that you are frustrated," and making more of a remark on the behavior that is happening rather than trying to fix it. And I think as parents, we rush too often to fix the problem rather than teaching our kids to fix it themselves. Mm -hmm. And this is all about teaching responsibility and independence. And it goes such a long way. So oftentimes teens will say, I just want my mom to sit and listen to me. Like, I don't want any advice. I don't want to hear any feedback or anything. And this goes for my adult clients as well and teens I work with. Um, I do the same with my kids. I have three, a 15, 10 and 12 year old. And this is a common exercise. And we, I always say, are you ready? Do you want to hear something mommy has to share? Or what do you think? So we use a lot of questions. Yes, it does take more time on the part of the parent, Mm. but it's so helpful because it really creates this non-threatening space where they, you know, kids feel 
in general that you're going to judge them. They feel that you're going to have a negative comment. They feel that, you know, you're not going to be accepting of what they have to say. So, and I always call these assumptions because it's what kids internalize the same they do with friendships. Mm. Oh, mm-hmm. So interesting what you're saying that, you know, kids have an assumption of what their parents are going to say. I was literally talking to my mom two days ago about that exact same thing. I automatically <laughs> think she's going to have this widely negative response. Um, <laughs> yeah. But to give you some context, my, my mom is in social work, so I kind of grew up with more of an understanding of this side of things myself. Um, So I found myself to be quite perceptive and what I've really noticed with social media is um, a lot of my friends just think, what's the point in getting dressed up anyway? I'm never gonna look like her. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm wondering if you noticed a connection between this kind of, you know, Instagram filter or Snapchat filter and Mm -hmm. any Uh, body dysmorphia yes and the comparison so you know if we think about prior to social media you would probably be uh, um, let's say at an event or at a party and you'd be sitting down on a couch watching people dancing I'm just giving an example and you'd be looking at that girl who you would strive or someone you're attracted oh I would like to be like that or I would like to look like that And then you were done, you went home and you probably thought about it a little bit, but then you would get distracted with something else and it would leave your mind. Mm. Now, today with social media, it's constantly right there at your fingertips. You see it every day. Um, You see that same girl, let's take in the context, that person that, you know, you, you envy or you're like, wow, I would like to be like that, but I know I can't. So I, I think at the end of the day, that is more of a symptom of what the person is internally feeling. And, you know, there's so many sites now. Um, I think there's one on Instagram. Uh, my, actually my daughter showed me it's called feminism and Mm. on Instagram. And I really like it because it really shows, it just normalizes how women look, how they feel and how we come in all different shapes and sizes. And, that's what's normal and that there isn't a specific type of person that you need to ascribe to. So oftentimes I'll tell my teens and, and I say, you know, follow pages that make you feel good. Um, avoid trying to use the filter. If you feel like you have to use a filter, just don't post it because is that who you really want to be? Is that who you want to portray yourself as? Yes, they're using the filters. There's the uh, slimming, uh, I think there's like a slimming app to, you know, slimming your arms and legs. But I really believe based on what I'm seeing just with teens in general, that they go through this phase between, especially here, I'm not sure how it's in Europe, but I'm sure, I mean, kids all over the world are probably experiencing this in middle school, which is grades six, seven, and eight, right before they hit high school, there, it's the most difficult time for them. And the reason why between the ages of 10 and 13 is the most difficult time is because they're developing, they're creating their identity. Um, there's the physical development, breast development. For boys, it's you know the voice maturing. So they're going through all these hormonal changes and you know there's puberty hitting and you know, and this is what they're seeing in front of the mirror and it's scary. So I think it's so important to be able to normalize. So for example, 
um, if your child's breaking out and like, Oh my God, I look so ugly. I don't like my face. I mean, you'll hear that a lot. It's all about, well, you know, that's, that's something you can work on. Right. Or that's something you can do about that. It's okay. You're beautiful the way you are. This is normal. Let's talk about why this is happening. And then they're really curious to know, and that could be also um, diet, diet in terms of sugar intake or et cetera. And then they kind of learn how to take control. Now, in terms of body image and how I look in terms of my form, this is not about teaching them, oh, I have to change this. No, this is about them loving who they are and really understanding that you are unique and special the way you are and that everyone is going to be different. And you know, even in life, you know, you take this a step further, when you get a job, you will have people around you in a boardroom or, or in your office, who are different, and are going to have different ideas and personalities. And um, are you going to get upset if somebody has a better idea than you? So, you know, it really goes from the body image piece of how I feel on the inside now to the exterior, and then you even bleed it through competition and you bleed it through, um, you know, just intellectuality. So that's why I think it's so important to nail this and, and really have kids, you know, I, I think like you said, even your mom being a social worker, it's so helpful, right? When you have constant communication or conversations around mental health, because as you get older, it's something you're so used to talking about. And this is no different. I think that when we do talk about that, it helps. Another piece I want to bring up with this is around body image and eating disorders just in general that can develop is parents to be really in tune with how they communicate about food in the house. Um, I feel like when parents do things like, oh, don't eat this, don't eat that. Um, oh my gosh, you had so much of that today or so much of this today. It really brings a lot of attention to the food rather than redirecting the behavior. So, you know, parents have a choice. Well, just don't buy that. Then if you feel that that's something that they're going to be attracted to, because you saying don't eat that can definitely create a lot of issues. Or even I've seen, you know, parents saying, oh, you have to finish everything on your plate, everything. You can't get up from the table to finish that. Well, then we see a link of that and obesity in children. So, there's, it's interesting how, how we communicate around food is so important because that's also how it impacts our body image and what we see about ourselves. Also, another thing is how parents communicate and parents to be mindful, you know, are they staring at themselves in the mirror? Are they very obsessed as a parent about their body image, their physique, how they look, um, what are they saying about themselves in front of their child? That's mm -hmm. another thing. Is your child seeing you getting ready for hours and hours and hours on end in front of the mirror? What are you teaching them when that happens? You see, so there becomes a, I want to say a focus, right? On, yeah. on that. And then that can translate. Absolutely. Then I'm more interested and curious about social media and, you know, looking at all the people that I wish I could be instead of really working on how I am feeling inside. Am I happy with who I am and who I look like within myself? I think you brought up a really interesting point there about how the parents looking at themselves, because kids pick up on everything. 
<laughs> yeah, that, that, yep. that's my experience anyway. You know, they even if you don't think they're picking up on something, they know there's something going on. Um, so if they're hearing their mom say, you know, oh, I'll never look like that, they're going to automatically pick up on that thought process as well. Um, subconsciously, which I think is a really, it's really interesting. Um, yes, yes. You know, it's just about maybe changing the words that you use. You know, maybe like, oh, I'm going to work so I can get a body, you know, I'm going to work out today so I can get a body like hers is maybe a different way of framing it. But mm -hmm. yeah, no, it's interesting. <laughs> yes. Or even, you know, say, well, I'm going to work out to to strive to get the body I want for myself, you yeah. see, or or strengthening my legs or strengthening my abs or strengthening my arms. And um, you, even when I talk about working out, um you know, with my kids, we, we always, especially my older one, we talk about, you know, she'll, she'll always tell me, um, you know, oh, mom, let's go work out. She loves to work out and run, et cetera. And I said, you know, how does that make you feel when you work out? She goes, oh, I feel so good. I feel energized. I feel motivated. I feel more focused. Mm. And I like those words because it's, she's not saying, oh, I'm working out because I want to look like that or like this person or I, but you, she could say, oh, I, I want to strengthen my legs or my arms or et cetera. So I, it's okay, I feel, when it's inwardly turned into how they want to look for themselves. And that's your goal on yeah. your body, what you want to do for yourself. But not necessarily comparing myself. I think somebody can be a role model like, wow, she's so inspiring as a physical trainer. Wow, she's so pretty. She looks great. Mm. Um and not getting fixated. Oh my gosh, I have to have the same legs as her because I will never have the same legs as her. She's no, probably I mean, unique, you know? Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but it's so true. You're right. I, I think there's that fixation on that. Absolutely. And then you feel like, oh, whatever I'm doing is not good enough, or I don't look as good as that person. Um, so just reframing it can be really helpful. And I always advise parents is, you know, just turn everything when something's concerning to you or sounds concerning is frame it in form of a question. Uh, instead of saying a statement or trying to fix what they're feeling because you feel like it's wrong what they're saying, or it could be harmful, frame it in form of a question so you can create a dialogue. Oh, tell me more about that. What do you mean by that? Tell, you know, and just engaging them in that way so you can really hear what they have to say. That's brilliant advice. I, I'm going to be telling everyone about that, by the way. <laughs> no, um, I'm going to move on to something a bit different now. So mm -hmm. I was having a look on your website um, and looking at some of the different therapy techniques that you use. I saw that you use um, mindfulness as one of your therapy mm -hmm. techniques. Can you tell me a bit more about how that works? Oh, yes. One of my favorites. Um, so mindfulness is it's really about being in the moment and feeling grounded. Mm. Um, I do a lot of, I always start with breathing because obviously most of my clientele, they are anxious or, I mean, regardless of what you're presenting with, I think we our, our world is so fast paced that we don't really get to enjoy the moments right now at this moment, you just sitting here with me in this room today, you woke up this morning, you're breathing, you are healthy, you are here. Um, and 
it's really about doing visualization. And I always start with that. And it's also a technique to help them to just snap out of whatever they are thinking that could become obsessive or anxiety provoking that they can practice when they're not in the office. So for example, if they feel like a panic attack is coming up or if they feel like they're getting triggered about something, it's just really about redirecting the mindset. So we do visualization. So it could be, I want you to imagine a place that you really love and you feel so happy. So for example, I'll share, if they have a hard time finding that, I'll say, well, for me, it's the beach. I'm imagining myself sitting on the beach. My eyes are closed and I feel the sand in my feet. I feel the sun, you know, basking on my arm. I feel the heat and I could hear the waves. So it's all about engaging your five senses. And you can do this for a couple of minutes and then you have them. And then because they're so focused on that visualization of what's happening, you have them also take three deep breaths, right? Deep breath through their nose and out through the mouth. And you do that three times and, you know, and then they open their eyes and then you do a redirection exercise and a redirection is all about, okay, what is something else you can think about in that moment instead of focusing on what made you feel upset or anxious or triggered. So that's a form of mindfulness. I also use, um, there's so many, I'm sure, you know, incredible, um, applications out there. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite is UCLA. Uh, it's an app UCLA mindful. There is USC. So U S as in Sam C as in cat. Mm. Uh, it's called USC mindful. Uh, there are many, many calming apps. There's also Headspace. Yeah. And I recommend these, you know, you can use these at any time. Um, the, the, I, I usually do them daily. They're very helpful. Uh, as people are suffering from insomnia, UCLA Mindful has a 13-minute one, which is incredible. You will be out within 13 minutes. And it's pretty much a guided mindfulness meditation. Uh, and again, if you really think about it, when you listen to all these meditations, it's really about bringing you back to the now, right now in this moment. And I think that's what we tend to forget. We tend to make so many plans far out that we never really get to enjoy right now, right here. And, you know, you started today with COVID and yes, we can dwell on this and say how awful this is or in which it is. And yeah. you know, how hard it is to, to, to not be back at work, to be here in the home all day. But I try to redirect people in looking at it. And from a positive standpoint as, well, we look at all the things that you were never able to do before that you can do now. What are the things that you are grateful for right now at this moment? And I think for and a lot of people that's, you know, getting to spend more time with their kids that they wouldn't have had otherwise is a big one yes. this year. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, I know. And last yesterday, so funny you mentioned that I was, you know, I was in the kitchen, I was putting things away. And then I was thinking to myself, just a thought silently. Wow. If there was school tomorrow, I would have to wake up at around 6am, rush, 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 get the kids out, do this, do that, pack the lunches, the snacks. <laughs> um, yeah, I would be free, all free by 8am and just have my time like I used to, just to me. 
but do I really want that right now? So it was so great to just snap into that moment where, cause I really enjoy them. I, we, we, we did, you know, there's this incredible bond that was built with all three. Um, they're just so used to us all being together, uh, especially having lunch together every day and dinner together every day. Um, you know, not really stressing over the driving component. There's a lot of driving here, uh, getting them to different places. I felt I was an Uber driver half the time, to be honest. So I don't really miss that, you know, but, you know, it's just redirecting yourself in any situation you find yourself, you know, wow, I, I, I know this was hard and not to discount the tragedies, right. And the lives lost. It, it's a horrible disease. I, you know, obviously our hearts go out to everyone. I mean, we've had also some losses, but just to look at the context of things of where you are at now in this moment is another part of mindfulness mm. and, you know, being grateful for, for this moment right now, even if it means you're sleeping in an extra hour or two, or you're, stress levels have probably decreased. Um, you don't realize it. My, my husband yesterday for the first time had to go back in the office to go pick up something. And then he said, Oh, it was so great to be in there. I loved it. And I, and before he wasn't that fond of it because he used to love his Fridays where he was working from home Hmm. because it was just so far. He drives a lot to get to work, but I said, you see, you see something you took for granted. Do you see how much? Cause you know, he just, you have all your things at work and you know everything's there it's so easily accessible there's you don't know what you have until it's gone (laughs) exactly yes and the grass is not greener on the other side and I feel sometimes we need these wake-up calls right to you know just in general I just think however life takes us sometimes we do need to step back Mm. and it's hard because life takes over and and you're not able to to step back sometimes and, and look at how it could have been or should have been. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to move on again. Cause I want to talk about your book, um, Frankie and the worry bees. <laughs> yes. I absolutely love the idea of this book. Um, I think the reason that you did it is, is really, really great. And I think it can help so many people in your field communicate on a different level. So if you could just talk us talk to us a little bit more about the book. Oh, yes. Thank you. Uh, so Frankie was, you know, really never in my plans. It's it's one of those spontaneity things that just happened. I, don't you love spontaneity? I think the best pro- the best things come out of spontaneity. Um, so it, it happened. So we hit when was pandemic pandemic started in March. So around March, all of us, I mean, I, I think the entire world had to stop and rethink how we're going to do business and how we're going to work. Mm. And for us, psychologists, therapists, providers, and many other professionals, uh, Zoom or or teletherapy was was the next route or the only route available. Thank goodness for for that. And I was noticing that kids and, and just my clients in general were having a very, very hard time adjusting and connecting online. Uh, obviously by now they're very used to it. I've had no, it's, it's been great. Um, and I had to think fast. And one of the things I use in my practice, just in general, is I love using analogies. Usually I would use verbal analogies just to explain things. Like I would say, oh, you're in a bubble and you're stuck in that bubble. Is that what it makes you feel like? Or 
Sometimes you give an analogy of an ocean or you feel like you're drowning and you feel you can't keep your head up on the surface. So I use a lot of analogies in my practice, which helps all my clients from all ranges. Mm-hmm. And this is how Frankie was born because it started with this little, I, I first of all, I was, Frankie was a girl, not a boy. Um, and you know, I went back and forth with a character, but I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not an artist. That's not my area. I have to give all the kudos to my incredible artist, uh, Timna Green. She's amazing. And, but it was stick figure with two bubbles and this is how I was doing it via zoom. And I was telling my clients, well, okay, I know right now is a really hard time for you guys. I know this is rough. I know adjusting to online learning is hard. I know you don't like to have your camera on and everyone's staring at you. Um, I know you're having a hard time turning assignments, et cetera. I mean, the list of negatives was just outpouring. And still now, I think kids are still struggling. Mm -hmm. Um, So we would write all the negatives on one end because I was trying to offer them solutions. Like, how am I going to help them through this? This was just, it was one of those things in crisis mode that we were doing. And then they turned all the negatives into positives. And what did that look like? Okay, so let's say somebody said, I can't do this. I'm not strong enough. Um, I can't go through that surgery or I can't do this or I can't do that. And then they would turn those negatives into positives. Like I can do this. I am smart. I am able. And, and I would have them repeat that every day. Okay. They would stick it on their wall and they would print, they would, they would create their own drawing, et cetera. So when I noticed the success and the kids would come back and tell me, wow, I'm not scared of this anymore. This worked. Or I used to have a fear of this animal and I don't have it anymore. Or I have to, I used to have a fear of turning on my camera. Now I don't. Mm. Um, they started telling me how helpful this was. And then I just knew at that moment that I had to turn this into a story. And that's how Frankie was born. You know, and I had at first many kids, my kids, my kids and other kids were my critics first. So I had them read the script and you know, the only word my, my son who's 10, he's like, mom, you can't use the word procrastinate. No one knows what that word means. (laughs) And I said, you know what? I said, AJ, you're right. That is a really hard word, but guess what? You guys are reading such difficult books just in general. And how about that being just a new word? Because I think procrastination is so widely used. Um, I think it's misused. Mm -hmm. I think we just think of kids as they can't do it. They're just being lazy or they don't want to do it, but there's usually an underlying issue to that, which is emotionally related. Yeah. And that's how Frankie was born. And it was really taking you through that journey of conversation and communication and how parents are also being vulnerable in the book and normalizing. Oh yeah. I have worry bees too. So that's where I came up with the concept of the bees. Um, I look, I love bees. I hope no one gets offended with the bees, <laughs> um, but the bees are, they have a negative connotation just in the sense where, you know, when you have a bunch of bees buzzing around your head, you are going to run, you're going to get scared and run. Even if you see one bee, my everyone can, you know, they can. Yes. Yes. And I always make that joke because my, my grandfather was uh, incredible. He used to have beehives and he's the one who actually, he gave me one of my first uh, instructions on, on, on bee collecting and honey, and he would make his own honey. So it was so interesting because I think I got bit so many times Mm -hmm. that that kind of stuck with me as a child. 
And yeah, it does create that fear. So it's so interesting how the bee, the bee analogy was the first thing that I, that came to my mind. Doesn't it feel like these buzzing bees all around you? That's what the worries feel like. So that's how that came about. I honestly, I think I said already, I just love the idea of it because sometimes it can be difficult for people to vocalize how they're feeling. And I think having it in an image makes it easier to be like, yes, that's how I feel. Um, at least that's how I feel about the book anyway. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So that's, that's my goal is for it to be, you know, helpful. Um, and, and it has a, that's this activity, the act, I have an activity at the end of the book. Um, and the book can be found on Amazon and, you know, I'm, parents can photocopy it. There's a girl version and a boy version. Um, and you can create any version you want. And I just wanted, you know, for parents to be able to, you could photocopy it and you can paste it on your wall and you can have your kid, you know, draw in their own positive thoughts and the negative thoughts Mm. and then, you know, work on it every day and see how that helps them. And obviously, you know, I always recommend seeking a mental health professional if the anxiety intensifies or any of the symptoms that they experience intensifies. Um, But believe it or not, I've, even my adults loved it. Um, So they really responded well to it because I see, you know, not just children, but I see teens, young adults and adults, and they also loved it and responded really well. Um, Some laughed at the beginning and said, oh my gosh, Regine, this is so silly. I mean, they weren't offensive. They were just saying, this is so silly. This is, and I, and then they would come back and say, oh my God, it works. I said, yes, of course it works. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, and it's not a new concept. If you really think about it, the idea, it's all about manifestation, right? And if I get up in the morning and I say, I'm going to have a terrible day today. If I say that, I will have it because it's all about how I visualize and see things. But if I get out of bed and say, Jody, I'm going to have an amazing day today. I'm going to make the best of it. Hmm. I'm going to try to be calm and happy and enjoy every moment. I will. I will most likely have a great day. So it is the same concept because I think that kids and adults too, right? We, we get stuck in the negative Definitely. and we, right. We hyper-focus on that. Yeah. And when you hyper-focus on that, you are attracting that to you. So it's there, there's something to be said about seeing things in a different light. It's kind of like, Oh my gosh. Think about it this way too, with a friend, for example. See, here I go with my analogies. You see, (laughs) Um, I say, why don't you start looking at other people with good intent? Maybe she didn't mean to say it that way to you in that tone. She didn't mean anything bad about it. Why don't you start seeing things when people speak to you with good intent, that they're coming from a good place rather than a bad place, right? And I think that we can internalize that. Oh my gosh, did you see how she said that to me or what she said to me? That was so hurtful to me. But maybe in reality, that person was just a different personality type and was just trying to help you. And maybe that was just their style and they didn't mean anything wrong by it. And I think if we change the way we see things, we'll see people in general in a better light because it's so easy to jump the guns and jump to the negative and make assumptions about what something was said or how it was said 
instead of thinking, okay, well, thanks for that. All right. Well, that's your opinion and this is mine and you move on. Makes a, it makes a, an easier life for everyone, really. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, I just have one more question for you. And this is one that I ask anyone who comes on, which is, do you have any self-care tips? Oh, that's, that's a great one. So yes, I have a lot of self-care tips. Are you ready? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, the first thing I think that's important is, you know, I I think everyone has, I, I think number one, if we don't take care of ourselves, we can't take care of other people. So self-care for you could be, you know, I'm going to wake up this morning. I'm not going to look on my social media. Maybe I'm going to, you know, since we're in quarantine, maybe I'm going to go outside and take a walk, or maybe I'm going to check out that yoga video and do that every morning for 10 minutes or a stretching exercise. What is it for me that makes me feel good about myself or will get me energized and in good spirit? So to me, self-care is taking care of yourself first before you can take care of other people. And it could be anything that you feel that could be relaxing to you. And I think people have to step back and think about what is that for me? That can even be the, you you know, one of the apps I suggested and doing that for five minutes. That's also another form of self-care. Baking could be a form of self-care, cooking, Uh, I think what's helpful is just sitting down and writing down all the self-care activities that you enjoy and would do for yourself. Um, Even taking a bath or taking a warm shower and then getting a good book or listening to a podcast, um, whatever it is that gives you that five to 10 minutes a day to you. And you can start with self-care in your day for 10 minutes and then end it with 10 minutes. Um, It could be lighting a candle. It could be anything that makes you feel good. It could be journaling, right? So I'm I'm a big proponent of journaling and writing down our thoughts and how our day went and what is one thing I can take from today that I was grateful for and one thing I can change about my behavior or what I did or I didn't do. And that could also be a form of self-care journaling's one of the ones that I've started doing um, over the past few months and it it really does make such a big difference I think mm-hmm. <laughs> yes it's so helpful right because it feels that you know I often ascribe journaling to <coughs> excuse me to letting out your emotions uh, you know exerting all those pent up emotions that we feel during the day that we're not aware of and letting it out on paper. And it's such a powerful and healing tool to use. Yes. And I think it helps us sleep better as well because we've kind of got all of those thoughts ringing around in our head down on paper. Yes, you don't have the buzzing bees at night. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, that's very good. Yeah, (laughs) well, uh, thank you so much for doing this today. Uh, Thank you for coming on. Absolutely. We'll let you get on with your day. Um, we've been here for quite some time, so I'll let you get on with your the rest of your day. I hope you have a good one. Thank you. Thank you. And I appreciate you having me and, um, and I hope to see you soon. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much to Dr. Rajin Muradian for the interview and thank you to the listener for listening. 
Catch us next week on Monday for a brand new episode.